they got married uh, in, uh, I guess, 71, Jody and Sammy. And when they had me, Jody's wife had a problem with it. Ex-wife? <laughs> no. <laughs> he never got divorced from his wife, so mom and his marriage wasn't really legal. Well, it is a birthright. I mean, I, I don't joke when I call country royalty a real thing, you know. I am born into it. You were going to be a preacher. Well, yeah. This podcast might be about three or four hours. Uh, ended up having an affair with a monk up the street at the Catholic college. I know this doesn't sound healthy, but it was just, <laughs> I was a hooker for a long time, for a while. Now, Frank says I wanted to be the first openly gay country singer in country music. I don't remember saying that. I don't, I wouldn't put it past me. And there was Keith Gaddis. He's like, hey man, what are you doing? And uh, that clicked something special. Well, when one outrageous story is enough to have a deep impact on somebody's life, let's talk about the abuse. That's one thing that could be huge. Then let's talk about the coming out and getting kicked out of your family. That's another thing. All of these situations on their own could make a psychologist rich. At some point you go, hey man, are you bullshitting me? Stories bring lessons, laughter, unforgettable experiences, and memories that far outlive the storytellers themselves. Great stories happen to those who can tell them. This is the Jack and Around podcast, hosted by two-time Academy of Country Music Award winner and master storyteller Jack Ingram. In these open dialogue podcasts, Jack digs into the personal stories of a wide variety of special guests, including your favorite music, sports, and entertainment personalities. And now to introduce today's guest, here is podcast producer, Matt Bevato. Thank you, Mr. Roddy Yates, for that intro. Welcome to the second episode of the Jack and Around podcast. Sitting here in front of me is Mr. Waylon Payne. Waylon comes from Country Music Royalty. His name, Saken Godfather's Waylon Jennings. His dad is the late Jody Payne, played guitar for Willie Nelson for 35 years. His late mother, Sammy Smith, who's one of the first female outlaw country music singers, best known for her crossover hit helped me make it through the night in 1971 she subsequently won a cma award and a grammy and inducted into the grammy hall of fame in 1998. waylon has released two records one in the early 2000s to most recently in september 2020 he's also been on about a dozen movies including playing jerry lee lewis in the johnny cash movie walk the line before i toss it to jack some quick housekeeping notes please like share and give this podcast a big old five-star rating provided below in the description our links to social media and the website, jackandaroundpodcast.com, plus more information about Waylon and the host. Speaking of the host, take it away, Jack. Jack and around. Jack Ingram and Waylon Payne. <laughs> Welcome. That's badass. Well, Does that happen every time you pull that trigger? You sometimes gotta... it's a little more magical than others. <laughs> really? I'm going to need to get one of those guns. So the name of your new record is... Hey, man, we're, we're rolling, right? The name of your new record is what? Blue Eyes, The Harlot, The Queer, The Pusher, and Me. Blue Eyes. The Harlot. And yours are kind of green. Yeah. Do they change colors? Sometimes. Mine do too. Yeah. When I get to... You don't want to see them yellow, green. They That's get, jaundice. Yeah. That's when I've been like eating too much ass. That was back... <laughs> That was back in 97. <laughs> yeah, was that sound wrong to say? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, did he say? What? <laughs> I'm sorry, what did you say? Yeah, yeah, no, what was that again? Your eyes get yellow? Sometimes, like yellow-green, like like with the gold specks, you know? Oh, no, Their hazel is mostly what they are. What is hazel? I- Brownish, greenish, 
sometimes blue. If the, if you're wearing like a certain color, they'll look blue, but they're not blue. My like dad if I has wear two different color eyes, that's badass. That's uh pretty special. One's blue and one's green. One's blue and one's brown. It's a trip. Your dad's pretty cool. He is cool. Mm-hmm. My eyes get red. Well, but that's not from eating ass. No, <laughs> <laughs> I don't eat ass. That's so just a joke, eyes, man. The the queer, the, the queer, pusher, and me, and the pusher and me. What, mm-hmm. what, what, what constituted which came first? Or that uh, man, that um, that is the last line of the last song on the album um, of, of a song called "Old Blue Eyes." Mm-hmm. And uh, in two thousand and seven, six, right after Mama died, I moved back to Nashville. Got a publishing deal with Frank Liddell. And um, had gotten pretty strung out on meth in California. Right. And uh, by 2005 and into six, Ty and I, he was gone. And so I kind of came back to Nashville. Ty, the, the country singer that you didn't yeah. marry, but. Well, we were together for a minute. Yeah. He kind of, yeah, whatever. That's fucking, yeah. Um. So he was gone. I want to make sure we can tag him so we can motherfuck him as much as you need to. Blow it up. <laughs> you know, man, here's the thing. I figure uh, that whole time in my life, look, uh, there was stuff boiling to the surface that I really wasn't probably prepared for, you know? And uh, How old were you that time? I was in my 30s, 30, 31, 32, 31 and 32 and 33, because mom died in 33. Well, I just got my record deal was when it happened. So, so I got my record deal. It's a like, new record deal. This was, no, this was in, uh, this was back in 2002. This was the Drifter. Oh, the Drifter came. I just got the Drifter record deal. And there was about a two-year, year-and-a-half period in between getting the deal and the, the record coming out. And in between that time, I was living in California, and I happened to meet Ty. And he had gotten dropped from his label. You I was know? on Sony at that time. Well, yeah. There was a lot of talk. Yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, was, there probably there was a ton of talk. Well, there was a lot of talk in, in New York at Universal Republican Avery's office. Uh, they had just signed me and put a lot of money into me. And then the next thing they knew, uh, I'm hooked up with this this known This blacklisted addict. Yeah. singer. And I didn't know. You know, I mean, I'd been partying with my dad for quite a few years. Um we bonded over cocaine and booze and speed and and that's and and music. That's right. just that's just what his deal was. And um, you know, I thought that being raised in Nashville and being a you know, we live a life. Mm-hmm. We it's we're not strangers to drugs. Did you just think that was part of it? I I could always take it or leave it. I mean, it was an epic, I was an epic partier, but I also you know what I mean. It wasn't anything that really ever took control of me, but it, it kind of, I guess it was kind of snowballing over the years, you mm-hmm. know? I mean, it wasn't like I was always the most dependable person. There were years of my life when I would see, well, you, for example, you and I have been in each other's lives in and out for many, many years. Mm-hmm. There were times when I would see you when I was probably drinking, when I was working with Shelby or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Or there were times when I'd see you when I was partying too much on Coke hanging out with Jody or whatever. And then there were times when I would see you when I was just on other things. I went through the gamut. Right. Um, but uh, when I got to Nashville, 
uh, it uh, kind of took a different animal. I started injecting it. And uh, why was it? You think you think it was because the circumstances changed? Where it's like I think I was so sad. Were- I think I was so sad um, over. Look, it. I had lost everything I'd ever worked for. I lost my record deal, which was the pinnacle of everything that it, you know a kid strives for. Like us, I'd lost my anchor, which was my mom, and that was. It doesn't matter what you go through in your life. It was fucking completely devastating. I was not, and I was quote unquote married, if you will, to this dude. And in the end, you know, after we had split up and everything, uh, we we saw each other, you know, a year or so after it had happened and ended up, you know, hanging out. And you know what? It doesn't matter because it doesn't matter. Right. You know. It was a time in my life that thank God's over, and and it's the reason I don't date. You know what I mean? It really is, because like I, I honestly believed in it. Like anybody would go through a relationship, and it's stupid, you know, loving somebody and uh, given, you know, you know, I carried guilt around for years because he took me away from my mom, you know, um, as she was dying. And, and was your mom always on board with your lifestyle? With uh-uh. no. Um, you know, we were Other best buddies. Cheers. cheers to you, pal. It's great to see you, man. Good to see you. We were best buddies uh, growing up. I think I might, I think it's fair to say I might have been the light of her eye or the way I pull up her eye, whatever you call that shit. I adored her. Yeah. Um, she was the most magnificent thing I ever saw, and I always knew there was something different about her. It was just, there was, I just knew that she was something special. I didn't know how to hang out with her, but when, uh, you know, when I had my coming out experience, if you will, it kind of happened in some family uh, drama. Uh, her brother had been pulling some shit with me for years. And uh, and when it all came out at a counseling session at my Baptist college, the family uh, called me a liar and threw me out. And uh, he went on to be a deacon, you know, somewhere in a different town. And, really? Yeah, and my mom for a long, for a, a, a good period of time, um, for about four or five years, uh, was like, you know, you can't, you, we don't want anything to do with you. And if you come to my house, my my husband is gonna, he'll shoot you on sight. Good lord, it's kind of hard to hear from your mom, that, especially one that you. Well, you know, you there was, yeah, so there much. was, you know, there was, a, she was a darling, but there was a lot of, there was a lot of torture in her life too. Well, and at that, you know? at that point, you know, we're lucky that we grew up that we're able to be adults now knowing how that all played out for, for guys who had to come up for their family. And the only reason their families did what they had, you know, gave their sons the experience that you got was basically, man, we know now on the right side of history, it was just ignorance. Yeah. And so that wouldn't happen now. No, you know, they, they get that whole, there's that whole scapegoat that really grates my nerves. Oh, they did the best they could bullshit. You know what I mean? Right. Um, maybe they did. I, I don't really, you know, I don't think a lot about it anymore because it's gone. But however, you know, it had so much to do with the reason I was plying myself with out of my mind, I'm numbing drugs. Yeah. Yeah. Did you, did you and your mom reconcile? We did. Uh, we reconciled, uh, uh about four or five years after Shelby Lynn had a, a great deal to do with that. Um, I had, um, when I was living in Nashville, and I got to Nashville, probably ninety, 
95. Yeah. When did I meet you in Nashville? I started many, many, I started going many, up there many years ago. 95. Yeah. When I had a, I got a manager at a, I knew that Joe Ely <laughs> was managed. Joe Ely and I were managed. Many, many moons ago, pal. Yeah, man. Um, so I walked up there and knocked on doors. Yeah. Um, well, Shelby took me in, you know? Um, and that's what I had heard all my life, you know, from my mama. Mama used to live with Loretta uh, when she first came to town and Dottie, West. I mean, they all... Uh, you know, took turns babysitting me and throughout my life. And, and uh, Nashville was a, f- it was always a family community. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a family. It was just, it, it's never seemed like anything else. Right. And you grew uh, up in people's guitar cases. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, how, 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 in, how invested was your dad? Well, Jody, you know, I met Jody was never in my life um, through the first part of it because mother, there was, you know, mother hid me away. She changed my name. She put me with her brother and his wife and down in Vider, Texas. And I stayed there for many, many years. And until uh, the late 70s, early 80s, I lived with my mom for a little bit in Newcastle after she had a second string of records. But, um, Daddy was, uh, they, they weren't, he was not talked well about. Uh, was it unmentionable or was it just not a problem? It wasn't unmentionable. Whenever Will would be on TV, um, Bobby Dean would call me into the living room or, or I would be watching because I always watched the country specials. Right. Um, Bobby Dean would always point out that, well, there's your father. And, you know, I just didn't, uh, man, I didn't, I never could see it. I never could see it. In my mind, my mother, okay, so my mother was fucking outrageously incredible. She was like a fucking out of sight. And in, in my what way, mind, talent wise, no, she was or? just, she was just, she was just an amazing woman. She, uh, she was beautiful. Uh, I never heard anybody sing like her in my life. And it's not just because I was her kid, maybe it was, but. Uh, it she just was a different soul, and and she didn't know how to deal with me. I don't think, and and she put me where she thought I would be safe because she had work to do. Mm-hmm. You know, but Daddy was not a not an option. He was not an option, and uh, wasn't for many years. Now, when I got older, like seven or eight, nine years old, ten years old, Mama would occasionally, every year or two come back off the road say, hey, well, I, I saw your father this weekend and, and uh, I've got his phone number and his address if you'd ever like to, you know. But I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, uh, I never connected that as, oh, that's your father. Mm-hmm. My father, I, my father was like fucking Robert Redford. My father was fucking 18 feet tall and beautiful and handsome and was just somewhere waiting for me to find him. Right, it was a fantasy. He was responsible. He was a, he was a caretaker. He was he was there to make things better and you know, that's what that's what I expected because my mother was so incredible and I just couldn't wrap my head around the fact that she had bedded down with this fucking guy, you know. So you built it up in your brain, built it up in your in your head be maybe when I mean him yeah, Things I'd always just changed. assume that, you know, you know how it was? Here's how it was. I grew up on records, right? Mm-hmm. When I was three or four, there were two records in my life. One was Help Me Make It Through the Night. And the other was a Bobby Gentry record 
um, called Courtyard. It was on a 45. And in that song, he said he'd build me a courtyard with a lacy iron gate. Have you ever heard it? Mm. Beautiful song. It was on the flip side of Fancy. Um, it's about this guy who's building this courtyard for this person, and he loves her so much. So he builds her this place to stay that's supposed to be perfection, and he would come if he could, but he couldn't. And so whenever I'd hear Help Me Make It Through the Night, I knew that was my mom. And for some reason, whenever I'd hear Bobby Gentry sing The Courtyard, I was like, that must be my dad somewhere not able to get to me because, you know, I don't know. I just right. never could explain it. But when I met my father. It's almost was, like a dream where yeah. it's like, yeah. he's reaching out for you, but he just can't do yeah. it. No harm. Um, finally, when I was in high school, uh, I reached, I took her up on it. For some reason, I'm not sure why I did, but I finally met Jody when I was 16, and uh, started hanging out with Willie and and Jody um, a little bit. I still couldn't because I was a preacher. I was in the Baptist church, and it was, you know, I wasn't supposed to like that stuff, but I did. And, <laughs> Imagine uh, that. Yeah, and uh, you were going to be a preacher. Well, yeah, um, <laughs> you know. Um, this podcast might be about three or four hours. It's a long, twisted story, <laughs> and a lot of it's fucked up and weird, but it's all true. Yeah. Um, I, you know, when when my aunt didn't really like my mother, she didn't like my mother. Is this your my mother's brother's wife, the lady that raised me? The the, the yeah. sister in law of the brother who no no the wife of the brother that, of who wasn't yeah, acting right around wasn't me. acting right with yeah. me. Yeah, uh, my mother when I was we we'll have subtitles that go. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> this is what he was doing. <laughs> Diagrams, if you'd like. Um, I, she put me with them from the time I was two months old. Because um, seventy two, I was born. It was the year she got the Grammy. She was she had to work, and that's mm-hmm. what she wanted to do. So she did it. Put me with them. They raised me as their own. Um, all through my life until the time I was 18, minus a couple of years, you know, a year here with mom or a year there with mom when she'd get married to somebody or, um, you know, but they were the stable uh, kind of family mm-hmm. in my life. And um, and when you hooked up with Jody, was it on tour? Well, was it, it on- was, he came to Frisco. I wrote him a letter. This is, this was, this was how cool Jody was. I wrote a letter. He got in on a, Thursday, I think, and was in Frisco from Alabama Friday afternoon. He was like, he was there. And he was not at all what I was expecting. At first, you know, it just was just not. Robert Redford. No, it wasn't Robert Redford. (laughs) It was not Robert Redford. (laughs) Um, But we started hanging out, and, uh, you know, I kind of was like, well, okay, if this is my dad, well, then I. I must try to get to know him, and but it just was not something that uh, ever came easy. Um, was it fighting, or was it just a ship? I think it was. Uh, I think that it was like this, or was it like this. <clears throat> it was this, but it was also this with my mother's memory. I looked a whole lot like my mom when I was young, and. Uh, I acted a whole lot like her, I'm sure. At least that's what he used to tell me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I think he had, uh, I think he might have had some unresolved feelings with her that he never uh, got a chance to resolve. And then here comes the son that he probably really didn't 
uh, you know, want to, he just, he had other things to it's do. hard to own up. Yeah. Was it a long, did they have a long relationship or was it just kind of? <laughs> oh God. Well, sorry, um, man. <laughs> no, it's good. This is good. Um, she and, uh, so this, they this, got this married. This is all for you. This is all great. They got married, uh, in, uh, I guess 71, Jody and, and, uh, Sammy and, uh, <clears throat> had me. And when they had me, Jody's wife had a problem with it. Ex-wife? <laughs> no. <laughs> he never got divorced from his wife, so mom and his marriage wasn't really legal. And that's they had it. In, so we're building it. this thing on the rock. It was uh it was <laughs> it was pretty crazy. And then him and Jimmy Day stole all of her band equipment one night and went to Mexico and bought speed with it and it kind of put her out of business. So that was the end of Jody. And uh, he went to work for Willie after that. Wow. Yeah. They had a really, they did a lot of speed, um, Daddy and, and uh, uh, I guess Mama and the cats back then in the day. It was the thing. Well, that they, was the thing. Yeah. They had, but they they didn't, uh, they didn't see each other again for a long time. Well, it's weird because there are TV shows where like Willie will do a show with Sammy and right. Sammy will open the show, you know, and she's doing her thing and Willie and Mama are like all over each other singing and... Uh, I think and I've then, seen some of those. Yeah, and then Willie comes on with then there's Jody over there in the corner like going, mm, and here's Mama over sitting on Mickey's lap, you know, flirting with everybody and it was really uncomfortable, but they never get they were together again and, uh -huh. uh, you know, Daddy never came up off of much of anything except towards towards the last. So when y'all started hanging out when you're 16, uh, it was kind of weird because I was a I was a teenager and my dad was a rock star, if you will. Yeah, I you know took a couple of friends to Billy Bob and quickly got kicked out. And were you playing music at the time? Uh, -uh no. Well, I was singing in church. I was, yeah. That's the only thing I could do. You know, um, when I started showing an interest in music, my aunt was very quick to um, kind of nip that in the bud. She considered my mom an easy woman and uh um because she was a baptist right um, it helped me make it through the night when it was released was was quite provocative and was still banned is. in a lot of churches and banned in a lot of radio stations and a lot of preachers decided that they would you know talk about that sin and woman and and it kind of caused some embarrassment to um her yeah. churchy yeah so it was just always touch and go. They would love her when she was there, and when she was gone, they would remind me of what a, a whore she was, oh, or of what like a, was. you know, she wasn't responsible. Look, you know how much she loves you. She's put you here with us, and kind of. And hindsight only gives us the, the ability to go. <laughs> it's funny that they were so down on that song, but what yet, it represented, yeah. but yet they were probably also singing in that same service. Uh, Lord help me, Jesus. Oh yeah, by the same author. Yeah, or uh, one day at a time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So when you're when you were hanging out with your dad at 16, you said y'all bonded over. Well, that didn't come till I was about 18. So like at 16, we we tried to hang out. I was a problem, so he sent me back, you're not going to hang out with me, you know, that's not going to be this way. So we kind of uh, I went to Christmas once and you know, we tried, but it wasn't really anything that was that was kind of just stopping stuff. That was my thing. When the family expelled me, uh, and I didn't have anywhere else to go. I I called Daddy, and I was like, "Listen, 
this is what's been going on in my life. This is what's happened to me. I don't know what to do. So you and, came out uh, at 18. Oh, yeah. 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 And, I, and they told you to get out. Well, I got expelled from college and I, I had been, you know, I'd been, there was some abuse going on by the, you know, from my uncle and, and I had been dealing with all of it my freshman year in college because I had a, I was a religion major and I really believed I was going to save the world and be a preacher and God. And I, I sang gospel music, Amy Grant, and I was like trying to be the, you know, the next contemporary Christian singer. I was going to save the world. And what's yeah. his name? Chapman. Stephen Curtis Chapman. Yeah. God damn, he was great. Gary Chapman too. He was awesome. <laughs> Are they brothers? No. Uh, maybe. Like Sammy and Connie. I love Sammy and Connie. <laughs> They're great brothers. No, but uh, um, so I was at college. Were you kidding about Gary? No. What about Gary? You loved him, Gary Chapman. Yeah, he was a great guy. I loved cool. his singing. Yeah, he was. He, I listened to him, and see when I when I couldn't listen to country music and I couldn't sing country music, I I moved to the closest thing I could find, which was called back then this new thing called contemporary Christian, right. and it was like Michael W. Smith and Amy Grant and. Uh, 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 you know, Stephen Curtis Chapman, Gary Chapman. For God. Yeah, they were. Yeah, they were making. Uh, it was, and it was good music. Yeah, it was like as as close to rock and roll as we could get. You know, I mean, that was the the sound of the eighties, and it was it was rock. And so, I could sing in church, and that was okay. So I would sing for the Lord. You know, and so um, naturally that led to getting a call for whatever it was I was called to do. And so I was at college trying to, you know, do that, be a preacher. Be you a feel like kid. you had the calling. Thought so, yeah. And Just uh, a bit of a. Well, I had an uh, I had a fascination with boys all of a sudden, <laughs> and you know I was out of the house for the first time in my life, and there wasn't there, uh, you know, I mean, you know, you kids bloom, you know, people bloom into what men or women they become, and yeah, that's um, what you're supposed to do at 18, 19, 20. Yeah, you know, and so I uh, ended up having an affair with a monk up the street at the Catholic college. I know this doesn't sound healthy, but let me write this down. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and they caught me. They, they, the, the school, the, there, it was a long story. There was closed circuit TV in the place where we hung out and they got back to the Oklahoma Baptist. They flipped out and they were like, you know, call me into the Dean's office. And it was all in the same weekend that, you know, I had gone to this counselor and, uh, told him, I was like, look, I've, I've been going through some shit because I'm, I'm a preacher, but I think I might be gay. And I've, I've been um, having a sexual relationship for years with, with a family member that was wrong. And, you know, I've been in this situation. and I don't know what to do. And he was like, well, you need to go tell your mother everything that you've just told me and she'll know what to do. And so like an idiot, I fucking listened to him because he's an adult, you know, and so I did. I went and talked to mom, and mom fucking flipped out. Um, but she didn't really let me know at that moment. You know, she did this kind of thing, and she gave me this choice. She was like, you know, this is your choice. You're going to have to deal with this yourself. You got you can either you can either fucking come up off this secret that you've told me, and it'll destroy the family, or you can forget about it and and you can you can you know move on with your life. Like I did in the positive way. Yeah, like positive you know. way. Well, you forget it ever happened. That's what and, I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the you know, and um, move on with your fake life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you just you just stick it down inside and never have to feel it, and then everything's great. And we'll 
talk about it on cigarettes at Christmas or whatever, you know? Right. Um, so I, you know, I mean, that was my mom. I mean, again, you know, I trusted her. Okay. Uh, I'll think about this and I'll probably force this down inside and we never have to mention this again. Well, she never gave me that chance. She jumped the gun the next morning and fucking was like, this is, and so the whole family she was, started calling people and she called my aunt and uncle and was like, this is what he's saying. And it kind of had gotten through because I had told the family member, yeah. go ahead. Go ahead, call her. Yeah. Did you tell her at that same meeting, at that same instance, that same time that your that her brother? Yeah. Had been, okay. Yeah. yeah. That's a lot to swallow. Well, I mean, it, that was the reason I went to tell her. That was what I told her. I didn't tell her I was gay. I mean, that came the next, you know, day when I got expelled from college, you know, they, they just, they just kind of threw me under the bus after that. It was kind of a lot to divulge in a weekend. I can understand. And, <laughs> and, and uh, you know, the next morning it was like, everything just fucking skyrocketed. It was like, she called, well, my aunt Yvonne was the first call like seven o'clock the next morning. And, uh, She's like, well, your mother's called and told us what you're saying about your uncle. And we just can't believe it. It's we, the love we've given you. We never want to see you again. We, we, you just, okay, so until you're ready out. to, until you're ready to say this didn't happen, you're never welcome in this house again. And I'm writing a letter to say more. I was like, okay. And so I called my mom. Well, hold on. What did he yeah. say about it? I never talked to him again. Okay. Ever. Well, one time on the phone, but, uh, that was like a short conversation. I never saw him again. Was it basically two words? Fuck off. I was really, really pissed. And I, I like, it was, I really, um, it, you know, about a year had gone by or six months had gone, maybe three months. I don't know. Some time had gone by and I was like, this dude has really fucked my life up. And I did make that phone call. And I was like, you know, when he answered the phone, it, I don't know. I'm not sure what I said, but I was like, you, you need to fucking come up off some shit. And he's like, I don't need to say shit to you. And it was a big deal and hung up and, and, uh, it caused fucking so much strife and the fit tore the family apart. It tore the family apart. And the only reason I'm able to talk to some of them now is because everybody's dead, right. you know? And, uh, my mama, my mama came to my defense before she died with her dying breath, man. She, uh, knew what had happened and she, went out there and, and fucking made things right. And, mm -hmm. and then when I went died, you know, right. But, uh, in the course of that morning, you know, I called my mom. I'm like, well, this is what Aunt Yvonne. She said, well, I feel the same way. We, you know, until you're ready to say this didn't happen, you, you just, we have no room for you and you, that's it. And it seemed like within an hour I was in the Dean's office and the Dean, you know, was like, uh, it's come to our attention that you're a homosexual and, um, you, you're expelled. You need to be off of the campus by the end of the day, have your things out. And thank you very much. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, it was a Baptist college, it was a private college. So it was right there in the rule book. <laughs> and, uh, so you're what, 19, 20, 18, 18. Yeah. Did you feel like a balloon? That I didn't know what to do. I didn't, I mean, off? I knew, I mean, I knew I had known and been carrying for years the knowledge that if that fucking secret that the family and, you know, I had known that it would, if it ever get, if it ever came out, it was going to fucking, and then there I was, I was in that situation. And, and in a matter of a, about 12 hours, just absolutely everything was gone. And I was just a baby. I mean, I wasn't a baby, yeah, but I were. was, you know, a baby. And, uh, 
Yeah. So that, brass tacks. Where did you sleep that night? I stayed at some friend's house that lived about 20 miles outside of uh, Shawnee. And were your friends aware of your life like that? You were- well, it was uh, it was one of the one of the guys had taken me to my first gay bar a couple of, you know, or six months earlier. You know, it was a, a, a 18 and over uh, place for kids to go hang out, young kids who were coming out or whatever, you know. Um, Oklahoma City was a very, very secure place place it had a very secure little community uh underground closet community well it was now it wasn't closeted they had a very strong gay community in in oklahoma city it was it was on 39th and penn and um and it was there was a, a group of of there's little uh, when i first that first couple of weeks i stayed with this little drag queen named carrie she was 17 years old and took me in for a while and uh, she meaning he. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. She was a he. Um, uh, I was a hooker for a long time, for a while during there, you know, because I, I mean, I could make money, you know, it was just a, it was a weird transition. It was crazy. It was weird. But I mean, and I, I made peace with it. Uh, or I, I don't know. I don't, I mean, I just, I had been doing it for years in a way, you know, and so it was just, it, it was just it was just another role, different different form of payment. Yeah, I was kind of disappointed in the choice of selection, if you will. <laughs> I was like, this certainly isn't like I thought it would be. Nothing ever was, you know. Yeah. But I finally made it out of of that situation, and uh, somehow ended up down in Dallas and started writing a or writing or driving a parts truck for this Volkswagen dealership mm-hmm. and writing songs or just hanging out. No, I wasn't writing yet, but. Shortly after I got to Dallas and got that job working for that parts truck, uh, they had an audition coming through town for Opryland. Oh, wow. Yeah. And uh, Opryland was opening a new theme park in uh, San Antonio. Yeah. And I worked in the country music show. I went and auditioned for the job, and I got it. Did you read it in the paper or what? Heard it on the radio. Heard it on the radio. Went and auditioned, used my mama's name, even though we weren't talking at all, but I got that audition. I mean, I wrote it in great big letters, Sammy, <laughs> in case of emergency, Sammy Smith, <laughs> you yeah, know, man. and watched their eyes all light up, and I got that job, and um, that's where I started cutting my teeth was um, Opryland. In, uh, Doing what? Singing what kind of, like, what kind, What was the act? It was music, country music, and it was a country music review. I played Ernest Tubb and Roy Acuff and Ricky Skaggs and... You know, it, we danced and did the jigs. And did you do the whole, I'm walking the floor over you? Six times a day, six days a week. Yeah. Did you enjoy it? Loved it. Learned how to, learned my craft, learned how to work a mic, learned how to work a stage. Had you been stage. on stage before that? But- I had been uh, doing a little bit, but no, that was this was my, you know, up other than church. Yeah. You know, and so this was the real deal. We were getting paid. Uh, you know, we made like 400 bucks every couple of weeks but that was a lot lot of money you know back then and uh was it a traveling thing or no we were right there in san antonio i I lived over down in almost park yeah um off of uh man i wish i could remember the street it's beautiful down there yeah i lived in this little you know adobe four plex um right behind that little pharmacy uh and almost part of the the soda shop yeah you know i lived right across the street uh, from there Right by the dose, uh, what was the name of that Mexican food? The, fat, the first fast food, Taco Cabana mm-hmm. came after it. It was dose. I don't It was a Mexican that. food place, right? I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. 
How long did you do that? To Opryland? Mm -hmm. I did that for two years. And the second year, every year they would uh, they would pick uh, two or three of the cast members and they would fly them to Nashville and they would let them play the Grand Ole Opry. So keep in mind, I was not talking to Mama during this time. She was, we were on the outs. We would kind of touch base every now and then when the important stuff would happen. She was not totally gone, but it was, you know what I mean? It was just, we had a weird thing. Mm -hmm. Well, the second year they picked me and uh, called her up. I was like, Mama, guess what? I'm going to, I'm playing the, how did you get booked on the Opry? <laughs> I was like, Ugh. so I went, I did the Opry. Um, Johnny Russell. Hold uh, on. When you said that to your mom, was she, well, she said, don't go up there and flame on because they were all still convinced I was like this flaming homosexual and I was out in San Francisco, you know, like making pornos. And So her take was don't come out there and flame on. Yeah, don't go out there and embarrass me and, and be a fag. Did she and, say flame on? Because that's pretty. No, that was, those were her words. Son, don't go out there and flame on. That, is that a, is it like a saying? It's what that's, she, that's it's what she, it's what she, it's what she said. Don't wow. go out there and flame on. I'm like, all right. It's like, I'm going to, whatever. Can I sing your song? <laughs> Sang the piss out of it. Got an encore. John Johnny Russell's show. And uh did they did they introduce you? Oh yeah, they knew Sammy? exactly. And Sammy and Jody's son. Yes, sir. I've written it every, I've written it as uh, I'm proud of it. Even though they weren't in my life, I've never I've never not respected that lineage and yeah. that work that I sacrificed my mother for that. It's amazing that you that, that you were able to do that through all of the. Uh, it's not it's not really twists and turns. It's more of like your life got tied into a knot, and it's amazing that you were able to to, to keep that perspective of the respect for the like compartmentalize it almost about this is. Well, not only did I do that, but I was convinced that if I had lost uh, my family for something as trivial as who I was. I was never going to not be comfortable with who I was again. And, um, you know, I never have, I've never had a problem with it. I've never, I've never not been able to be myself and I've never had people give me shit for it. You know, mm -hmm. it's just, it's just always been the way it was, but I was there for a couple of years. Johnny Russell had me on his show at the Opry a couple of weeks later, the phone rang in the green room and it was him. And he was like, I don't know what you're doing with your life, but, uh, you need to think about coming to Nashville. I've got some people I'd like you to meet. And so my contract was up, and I packed the car, and I went to Nashville. Who were you driving? A Suzuki Swift hatchback loaded to the gills. And you made it up there? Made it up there, stayed on some friends' couches, uh, met John Doris. Nothing really happened. Uh, this is what, 95? Mm-hmm, 95. Started singing on, uh, started singing uh, on Broadway down. Uh, nobody, nobody sang on there down there back then. It was, it was uh, before it had the second coming. Of well, yeah. Well, this was like this was back when there were porn stores and, yeah. and you know Mama Joe's and the Turf and all those cool old places where all of the old bands hung out. But it was mostly junkies and prostitutes and shit like that. It was dangerous. People would get cut up. They'd say, but I never had a problem. Right. I, Loved it. I cut my teeth down there. I mean, the first bar I ever walked into down there, the troubadours were playing, and I 
sang all day. I would sing. I think I took you from one end of that uh, town, bar street, to the other one afternoon, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. Uh, and uh, that was just the thing that we did back then. Yeah. And uh, it was not soon. It was not long after that. I met Shelby. And I met Frank. I met Frank back then as well. Frank was one of the first people I ever met. How'd when you I run came into in him? So let's uh, <laughs> okay, so now we've now that we've cut through the, cut through the weeds of all that other stuff, which is part and parcel to you, how you got. But like, so then you decide, okay, I'm moving to Nashville. I'm a singer. I'm gonna be a star. At that point, you had dropped the whole idea of being a preacher. Oh well, I dropped the whole idea of being a preacher when I got expelled from college. That was done. Now, were you pissed about that, or was it more like it was that's more not of happen? a it, no? It was more of a of a wait a minute. I've been living in this family for eighteen years, and they've been telling me every day that there's nothing I can do that will make them stop loving me, and there is nothing that can change God's love for me. And yet, it's all bullshit. This was all bullshit because they're liars. They've turned their back on me, and I didn't even do anything. And these guys are full of shit. But you. I've known you a long time and you've never, it seems like you never turned your back or got mad at God. I mean, I don't know if it's, I don't know that it was his fault. I just, I, I was mad at him for a minute. I was. But you've never. Found peace with it, you know? Yeah. Like you've always seemed to be a believer. I mean, he's something that I've always believed in. So it's something that you can't really shake. I just don't know what it, you know what I mean? I don't Mm -hmm. know what it means now. Mm-hmm. Um, like song content, there's songs that I, I talk about God and a lot of things, but I don't know if it's what I believe still or if it's just so ingrained in me that it's just part of me. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I get it. I don't know. So you met, for, how'd you meet Frank? I had been in Nashville for a few years. Frank Liddell, the Frank Liddell, producer, the infamous record producer. Publisher. <laughs> yeah. Crossword um, puzzle doer. I met him when he was working at Decca Records. Yeah. I had uh, <laughs> balls the size of fucking cannons. <laughs> and uh, Cannonballs? I, yeah, I just never <laughs> believed in impossibilities. You know what I mean? Yeah. I was there to make uh, well, a If you career. made it this far, man, I don't understand how you could ever think that something's going to stop you. You've made it through that? Right. I mean, like, uh, so I would get desperate and I would make stops probably every couple months to all the majors. I would just walk in. Hey, my name is Waylon Payne. I would like to talk to someone about a record deal. I'm Sammy Smith's son. And I would do it, turn away, get turned away. And nobody would ever, nobody ever let me in. Did you have demos? Did you have? No, nothing, (laughs) nothing. Eight by tens, nothing? Nope, nothing. I'm just, (laughs) I'm Sammy Smith's son. I mean that. I bet you were a beautiful little fucker. I was pretty. I was really pretty. Uh, do you remember the lady that used to work the desk at Decca Records and MCA, Miss Willie? She was the black lady. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One day, uh, she looked up and she saw me coming. I, I mean, it was, she, I don't know what she was thinking, but she was like, mm. and I said, listen, <laughs> one more time, Miss Willie. I said, I just, I just need to talk to somebody. I just, I want, I really, I just want a record deal so bad. And she said, sit down. It's the first time anybody said that. First time. And uh, I was like, over there. She's like, mm-hmm. 
And goddamn, if a couple minutes later she didn't say, okay, go on back. You're looking for Mark Wright. He's waiting for you. Mark Wright. Mm-hmm. He was producing who at the time? He was the president of the label of right. DECA. He was producing uh, Chestnut, all the big guys, you know. Um, and uh, <laughs> so I go in there, my little fucking prissy ass. And yeah, had you thought through the No, I, had to, I was totally <laughs> bullshitting my fucking way through all of it. And um, <laughs> so I, I don't know what I said to him. I was like, I'm Sammy Smith's son. I want to be a singer. I'm Huh? We talked for a minute or two, and he's like, "I think I want you to step next door and meet my partner. Uh, I think he'll be able to help you." And so I did, and it was Frank. <laughs> now Frank says that uh, I came into his office, and um, <laughs> I can't wait to hear that. He asked me then, uh, "Well, do you uh, rock songs?" I said, "No." <laughs> he says. You play guitar? You want to sing me something? I said, nope. He's like, are, you, are you even gay? He's like, uh, <laughs> well, you got your work cut out for you. Wow. And that was our first introduction. And we started hanging out, me and Frank. Um, so you didn't play an instrument. Mm-mm. Weren't writing songs. Mm-mm. The only thing you had going for you, as far as being the first opening gay country I knew every country song in the world. And I was a great singer. I knew oh, that. Yeah. You know? Um but you didn't have anything to show to prove it. No, nothing. But shortly after that, I was driving my little Suzuki Swift down West End, and there was this big old bus parked out in front of the Holiday Inn. And out in front of it, I saw these Ray-Ban glasses and this fucking penny red hair, just fucking. I was like, motherfucker, that's fucking Shelby Lynn. I know it is. What, what hotel was it? What the one? Holiday Inn, right down on West End, the big one. You know, uh, right across the highway. No, on West End, Nashville. No, no. Yeah, um, by across the street from the Centennial Park. Okay, you know, uh, right yeah. up there. Yeah, yeah. 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 All right. And so I cut my car in there, and I pulled in. I'm like, Shelby, and she turned around, and it was fucking her. Now, and at her? this time, know her already. Well, my sister had introduced me to her music. Um, this is after she had that huge record. Tough all over. It was right about. It was right around that time that I found her, and she had just had Restless, that woman that she'd done at Magnetone with Brent Mayer, and mm-hmm. and when she uh, was going to be a country singer. Yeah, when she was country and doing really her country her singer. Yeah, yeah. This was before she did all the California stuff. Mm-hmm. This was back in 95, 96. Mm-hmm. and so I gave her a tape, and we start hanging out. Pretty soon, I'm living with her. She'd move me in, and and I was like. Uh, that's the thing I love about your stories. It goes from, holy shit, that's Shelby Lynn. Here's the thing. Pretty soon we're living together. Well, I mean, it was just, we, we just, <laughs> we started writing songs and, and I mean, I, I was living on, so Jody's wife, Vicky, she had a sister that lived here and that lived in Nashville with uh-huh. her husband and they lived. <laughs> okay. This is a good one. So for like the first two years I was in Nashville, uh, I lived at 12th and Wedgwood. You know where that's at? Uh-huh. It's a great big 12-story old folks home there. Mm-hmm. That's where I lived with my stepmother's sisters and her husband. My stepmother's sister and her husband. In the old folks home. One-bedroom old folks home. I slept on the couch for about a year and a half <laughs> trying to make it in, in the business. Insane. So uh, 
So she knew that I was fucking poor. We started hanging out, writing songs together. Then before I knew it, I was kind of not working for her, but you know, running errands or for sure. we'd write songs. Yeah. And she just kind of took me under her wing and, and we just were, we were just a weird bunch of people, you know, nobody would give her a shot because everybody thought that she was just outrageous. And, you know, she would pull guns on people and she'd been through shit. You mean everybody thought everybody knew? Knew, <laughs> you know, we go, Edward, what do you think about that? <laughs> we'll talk about that later. Um, but, you know, we just, she, that's when I started learning how to write. And, uh, By watching her or, just, or doing it with her? Doing it with her. I had things to say and, and she was quick to help me. I couldn't play, but I could sing and she could help me find the chords. And then she gave me a guitar and I learned an E and an A and a B. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was off to the races. Then I started learning how to play it myself. Then I learned how to be able to put those songs down myself because I had my own feelings, you know? Mm-hmm. And how many of those songs off of her, what was the, what was the name of her big record? That, I Am Shelby Lynn. I Am Shelby Lynn, which was phenomenal. the first time I heard that. My buddy Seamus gave it to me, mm-hmm. Sound Man. Was she writing those songs while y'all were hanging out? We had been riding together before that, and then she moved away, went away to uh, California and started doing that record. Mm-hmm. And I had written a couple, but it didn't get on there, or there was a chance that it might, but then I think I might have pissed her off or something and it was taken out of the, of the graces. But after the record came out, she had me come out to California, and uh, we kind of patched things up, and I started singing harmony. For her on that record. Now, were y'all a thing? No. Never. No, never. She's just, she loves who she loves and I love who I love, but that doesn't stop you from loving somebody. Of course. You know, we love. I was always under the impression that y'all were an item. Everybody was always under that impression. And I'm not sure why. Maybe it's because I use uh, language. She wasn't out. Well, I mean, I just, I just assumed that if you knew us, you knew. That's the way I've always lived my life. Everybody that was in our lives knew about what we were doing. It wasn't any big deal to anybody that was not in our world because they weren't going to be around us. You right. know? But then when her record takes off like it did, I mean, that was the biggest uh, record of yeah. the year. That was a big That was a big. That one record of the year. That yeah. was a Grammy. That was the one. Yeah. So th- then all of a sudden people want to know because she's gorgeous. She's got these songs that are phenomenal. I'm sure it's like, so, you know, the way we are. Like, so wait a minute, who are these songs about? Well, I mean, we stopped hanging out right after that, you know, because I was drinking too much, I guess, and I ended up getting fired. And Is it I'm, hard for you to look back on something like that? And I was a little jaded and all the things what you just said. Can, do you compartmentalize that as that was its own event or... Or were you a little jaded and pissed off and confused about fucking all of it? I think that I beforehand. didn't know what I was doing. I mean, I was just winging it. I, every I just every the move, and the secrets every and the move and that I ever made in my life from the time I was eighteen literally was winging it. I, I I would wing it from one situation to another, you know. So I mean, um, it didn't really. I don't think back on it as bad. I think it all brought me here, mm-hmm. you know, and that's not a bad thing. Of course, man. We just, it's just, it is what it is. And I'm proud of that moment in my life. It's amazing to me that the talent that you have 
has wasn't the thing that necessarily carried you through because it wasn't like your your talent as a singer and as a songwriter now it wasn't like that was all readily apparent when you were going through all that stuff and winging it from situation to situation but it certainly had to have helped i think that i had no idea when i got the desire to want to do this the amount of work that it was going to take you know i'd seen my mother do it and i had a free ride to walk on a stage anytime i wanted to so i thought it was kind of uh owed me in a way when i came to nashville i thought it was just i thought it might be kind of owed so in a bit almost like a almost it's like a birthright thing. well it is a birthright i mean I, I don't joke when i call country royalty a real thing you know i am born into it yeah but because of the sweat and blood that i put into it and the tears um and I'm glad that I had my ass kicked when I first came to town, you know. I'm glad my ass was kicked in lots of ways throughout my life, I think, because it just, you know, I wouldn't change any of it. Right. You know, maybe I would change some of the, I would take some of the memories out of my head that I can't get out of my head. That's right. probably about the only thing I would really change. Right. You know, because it's turned out really good. Absolutely. You and know? You have great friends, you have great relationships, you have great... All it's, it's amazing to me listening to this story. And you, we've known each other a long time, and we've talked pretty in-depth at times, but never all in one setting where, like, I'm overwhelmed. Like it's a well, I mean, like, I'll, I think we should go ahead and preface that overwhelmness with, like, we just broached all of this stuff, like, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. We've known each other for a number of years, you know, and thanks for, like, being a listener, you know, because people can, like, it's I don't know. It's not easy to be friends sometimes because you have to fucking go places that are weird. Yeah, I thank God that we um, have been friends for the number of years we have because it uh, kind of, I guess, it happened organically in the way it needed to. You know, um, but it's not really anything that's odd to talk about. It's, it's just, funny to me that it's just a little overwhelming sometimes because it does seem like it's uh, uh, just outrageous and. And, uh, you know, you, you made a comment. You were like, I don't, when I said something, you were like, okay, I don't know whether I want to call bullshit on this or not because I just don't, I don't know what I want, you know, but, and it does. Some of it is just outrageous well, and one crazy. one outrageous story is enough to have a deep impact on somebody's life. Let's talk about the abuse. That's one thing that could be huge. Then let's talk about the coming out and getting kicked out of your family. That's another thing. And then that jumps to, all of these different situations, being a, you know, having to sell yourself, all of these situations on their own could make a psychologist rich. Oh, of course. Hey, and, and ham. Going to the next hey, one. So, at some point you go, hey man, are you bullshitting me? Hey, <laughs> ham hooked me up with a with a shrink a few years back. <laughs> this is a true story. If I'm lying, I'm fucking dying. So I, I remember when I first started getting sober here. Um, they hooked me up with the this therapist. You get like counseling for thirty five bucks, you know, and and so they lined me up with this guy. His name was Seth, and and um, so I'm like, okay, you know. And I talked to my friend Sue Ann about it. I was living with her for a while. She she was a big part of me getting sober too, and Edward. And but when I moved in with her, it was a real accountability wake up. You couldn't party anymore because there's like this woman. This 60, 70 year old woman, like always who knew what you were here for. Yeah. You know, and she, you know, so that nipped pretty much a lot of it in the bud. Um, 
what was I doing? I just lost my train of thought. We, well, I was talking about all the stories one at a time would be enough to derail some people's lives and be impactful. And then uh, I totally lost my train of thought. Ham. Oh, the psychiatrist dude. Yeah, right. Seth. So they hooked me up with him and I'm like, Sue Ann, I, maybe I should tell him everything that's been going on in my life because that's what he's there for. And, and she's like, I think that's a good thing. So I talked to her for a couple of weeks before I went to my first session. And so I get the session and I sit down and he's this gay dude, you know, and they thought they'd paired me up right and everything. So he's like, okay, so what are you here for? And I went, Bleh. spit it all out on the table. And at the end of it, he was sitting there going, <laughs> And you don't really tell these stories in linear chronology. No, it was, it, no, <laughs> I don't think it was, it just kind of comes, yeah, it's a, it's a lot. You push it a lot of it down. So what did he say? Nothing. He <laughs> treated me for about two and a half months and then informed me one day that I needed to find a different, um, <laughs> A different therapist because Is this where you he was sleeping with him. No, I didn't sleep with him. <laughs> okay. I didn't. Um, but he was. He decided that he was going to leave the field of. Uh, he I got guess, overwhelmed. Counseling. I guess he got he overwhelmed. I got him out a little. Uh, yeah. Hey, but you know, I mean, he answered a lot of questions for me. You know, because like for a while, I had fried myself out so much on meth that I was seeing shit, and and like you know, I was in situations that I. You know, shouldn't have been in. Right. Didn't know what was really real. Plus, I was in Hollywood. And uh, in Hollywood, uh, things just happen. You know, it no, is the is land real. of make-believe. and no, this is real. None of it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, you know, and plus I was in the movies. So it was, it, was like a, it was like a perfect recipe for disaster, you know. Okay, so hold up. You're in Nashville. You meet Frank. Uh-huh. He says, oh, so you want to, this is your dream? Mm-hmm. Where'd that go? Um, it didn't. Wait, how old were you and what? 23. I mean, this was 25, 30 years ago. 1995. Yeah. So we meet up. I start hanging with Shelby. We did some demos. I took them back to Mark Wright and Frank. Didn't work. No. And one of them was holding me, let me love you like a man. I mean, it was really not a, it was really not a, it was, for the fences. <laughs> it was really good. It was really like, you know, and they were like, mm, great. Maybe just try something a little different. So is this after Ty? No, 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 no. Ty's not till way later. Ty's had, not, yeah. Ty, I think around this time, Ty had maybe got, just got caught in the bushes. Okay. That so was he, like what was going so on he there. He had his deal. He'd had his yeah. and he was out. He was like, yeah, he was, no, he wasn't out. He was never doing his thing. He was still making his hits, you know, this, he was still being a big, yeah. Um, But I had gone to work with Shelby. Shelby and I, she went to California. We hooked back up. I start working for her, singing harmony in her Mm -hmm. her band for this record, this new I Am Shelby Lynn record. Mm -hmm. I got fired in California because I was drinking. I didn't have any money to get home. She wouldn't give me a bus ticket home. She wouldn't. So I was just there. And so started staying on some friends' couches um, and slowly just kind of started trying to figure out what I wanted to do in California. And wasn't too long after that, I was driving down the road and I was stopped at a red light and I looked over and there was Keith Gaddis. I was like, Hey man, what are you doing here? And you know like, him? Oh yeah, from Nashville. We had used to sing in, in on Broadway. He's like, Hey man, what are you doing? 
And uh, that clicked something special. Um, we started a honky-tonk night in Hollywood called Eastbound and Down. Mm -hmm. At what club? Uh, it was the King King. It was a club on Hollywood Boulevard. He, myself, Austin Hanks, Travis Howard. Um, we did a country night. And uh, after the first one, which had more people than we even realized, uh, the next one was standing room only, and we were, like, making – uh, like we was the hottest show in there. How big in is Hollywood? Three, four hundred people so capacity, but there would be a thousand people. I mean, it was badass. You'd look down, Vince Vaughn and Katie Lang and Dwight and and you know these were Lucinda. It was like they were all we were we were having a ball. So he decided he wanted to make a record on me. He listened to my Who's songs. Who was playing drums? And was it a, was it a was it the same band every week? Or? It was uh, I don't remember who played drums. That might have been Mitch Moraine. Mitch uh, Mitch played with with all of us. Uh, he played bass in my band. Did he? Wow! To, to be a better drummer, right that's, before we went and moved out to LA. That's great. Yeah. Well, he was an awesome. Uh, He's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. He was great. Um, wow. So we start. Making a record. Keith borrowed $30,000 from this lady uh, who said she would fund the record if we would let her record the experience. So that was Margo. Margo started doing a documentary that's still in the making. And um, Gaddis produced that record on me. and Which is fantastic. Like it's a great record. It, he... You know, no, there were not many people that would take a chance on a gay country singer uh, in Hollywood well, trying to make it. I mean, well, I mean, that was, a, I mean, it was, really... a, to me, it was like, that was always a, a big thing because I couldn't get anything done in Nashville, you know what I mean? But when I came to Hollywood, all of a sudden, we had free reign and nobody cared, you know what I mean? Because, yes. I mean, we lived our lives. And so it was a very freeing thing to be able to be yourself out somewhere and not have people give you shit for it you know yeah. i was writing songs and i was accepted and i was i, I was able to to breathe and, and and be born you know a lot of people think those songs on that first record are about love relationships like her that's clearly about shelby lynn right. but people can't separate themselves from the the need to think that we were s sex partners because the song is a love song right. well i loved her you still do. Uh, yeah, we are very, very good friends. I still, I love her. I'll, I'll love my friends till the day I die. If you get yourself a place in my heart, you usually always have one, except for maybe a couple. <laughs> you know? Um, but uh, It's funny, though, man. Like When I think about that record and all of your music, and I know that we, I mean, to talk about that part of your life, for, certainly for the first 20, 30 minutes here, it's a big part of your life but it but as far as it goes with your music and your songwriting it's it, it never crossed my mind or crosses my mind still I don't give a sh like it doesn't that's the beauty about talent and the just the raw ability you have to convey your music whether yeah. it's your voice your writing your words whatever it's like being gay is fun to talk about it's provocative at some level 
but it doesn't make a shit bit of difference yeah. as far as your music goes, man. Well, see, that's what kind of, you know, when you figured that out, that it's not about a gay thing, you know? And that's been another very crazy, weird twist of it all. You know, I don't date. I haven't dated in 15 years. And, uh, but yet, um, that seems to be the, the, the talking point these days. <laughs> A little bit. I don't I, think it has to be. I don't think it does either because the record's not a gay record. I don't you know, mean, man. No, get like that's what I mean. It means that that part of your life. Maybe it's the times that we live in for me, and that we we're so far from where we were when you first came out with your parent, with your mom, and yeah, like that. Oh yeah, we, we've all moved on a little yeah. past that. It has nothing to do with it, man. You're, your music and your talent stands alone. So when you made that record, I remember it because I was, I think I had just made or was about to make Electric. Yeah, you, you, I think you made, you had just made Electric. And mine came out, we made mine in 2002. For some reason, man, three. I, I always feel like when I made Electric with Frank, and it might be just revisionist on my part, but I feel like your record influenced what I was doing. And maybe it's maybe maybe I hadn't heard it yet, but it, it well, feels you could to have me like because it was in I the mean, same vein. It it was we did it in two thousand and two, so I mean yeah, it was think, it was a couple of years until out. we had got it to where I'm I'm not sure. Did it make a? Did it, it didn't make a splash? Like it didn't. Well, I mean, some places it did. I mean, nobody. It didn't have any promotion. Um, because by the Did time it, it came out, out Republic? on Republic, yeah, by the, by the time it came out, I was already fucked up and off into the Thai world, you know? And so they didn't, I couldn't work it really. I did some dates with Pat, you know, but that didn't and really. he recorded one of those songs, didn't he? No, I, I wrote a couple of songs on his album, Wave on Wave, and I did all the harmonies. That's what got me into Republic. I remember he was way into it. Yeah, he loved that record. He really had a lot to do with me getting that deal. As a matter of fact, he was the one who said, you know, I was in New York playing a show with Willie. And, um, at Tramps or? Mm hmm. Yeah. And, uh, he was like, hey, you need to go see Avery tomorrow. He's, he wants to see it. So I took the record, like, and left Gaddis and everybody at the, <laughs> at the hotel. And I went over to Universal and got myself a record deal. It was badass. Um, yeah, I mean, I walked in and just what a godsend Keith Gass was for you, man. Yeah, he was uh, he was amazing. He he changed my life a lot. We talked about this a little bit the other night when we were on the phone, either early for you or late for me. But <laughs> where, I, where I was kind of questioning you because what I love about your songwriting when it's raw, like I've, you've sent me demos at times or whatever even stuff off this record that's coming out um, where it's a, it's very dense and a lot of, a lot of verses. And it's, and sometimes just like the stories you tell, like I'm kind of like, whoa, whoa, hold on. And I've always wondered like what Gaddis's role in as far as arrangements for those songs. And, you know, cause they're all that records, a pop, country rock masterpiece. Well, I mean, I'll tell you, the only thing that really, there were two things about that record that, that really changed from my original 
I mean, I lived with Wyatt Earp during the lead up to that uh, record. I was a carpenter in LA, uh, a, a spare t- job. And I. Jesus was a carpenter. Yeah, he was. Yeah. More organic shoes. Wait. <laughs> um, so Wyatt lived in this adobe place. More organic he, shoes. <laughs> love that. <laughs> Eight organic shoes. He had all these wooden beams out on this patio. You know, it was like stucco and, and these wood beams. And Wyatt was loaded when he lived in Hollywood. He was in the mortgage business and he hosted all of us at his house. He fed us for years. And when I first met Wyatt, he hired me to um, redo all of the, refinish all of the wood and, and re, right. re-stain it all. So that's how we, right. we met and that's, where I stayed uh, and I started writing that album. And I wrote most of that album at Wyatt's house um, on a little, uh, you know, four track at his house. And Were most of those songs like almost? They were done you, except you- for Christian. He, Gaddis made me change Christian uh, like uh, instead of, uh, I think I wanted to refrain Christian. Do you think it's one it's going to rain after like where is God now? And we we fought over that. And there was another song that I'd written about Henry Rollins after I'd written this uh, read this book that he had written about the night that his roommate was murdered and, mm-hmm. and all this kind of stuff. Um, it was called Now Watch Him Die, and I thought that would be a perfect end to the record. But Gaddis just did not get that song. And up until like two days before the record started, we had decided we were not going to make the record because we couldn't not agree on not the song. And I was, you know, whatever it all, it all, well, I just was like, if we're going to do a song, we're going to do an album of my songs and we should do an album of my songs. But I really didn't know anything about music. I knew I'd written all these songs and I knew how they were supposed to sound. Gaddis took it to a different level. Were these, was this kind of like, for all intents and purposes, was this your first batch of songs? Was that record your first big batch of songs? Oh yeah, it was my first batch of songs that I wrote by myself. Yeah, I That's mean, I'd been co-writing with some other folks, but these were my thoughts and and my things, and and uh, and you I, had no idea at that point that Gaddis hates everything. No, and he I didn't really have any. But he loved me, off. dude. He just loved me. He took me under his wing, and man, we were best buddies. No, can we yeah. smoke a cigarette? Yeah. I love that. Let's go. Let's go smoke a cigarette. <laughs> you okay, Edward? Oh, yeah. Great. Waylon. Shit's fascinating, man. It's crazy, isn't it? We could talk for days, you know, about these stories and everything else, but when you, when you, when a, when you just start playing, it's like, you know, that song, that saying about uh, talking about music is like dancing about architecture. That's you pretty, ever heard that? No. That's pretty great. Which just, you play that song, it's like, oh, it makes, it puts everything in alignment. It makes sense somehow, even though that song says nothing in detail about what we've talked about for the last hour and a half. Yeah. But it says everything. A lot. <laughs> I remember that story you told me about um, when you asked Ty something, you asked him, about stories, what's the what's the line in the song? I asked oh, I asked you, you for pictures memories. You. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you tell me that you started looking around the house and going, "There's not a picture of me on these." Walls. None, none. There was nothing. 
And uh, yeah, that was the that was the that was the night that it all kind of went down. He was like, "Hey, you need to get out of here. Uh, <laughs> my boyfriend's coming over to kick your ass." I'm like, "Wait a minute, what are you talking about?" <laughs> so yeah, it was fun. Yeah. So how'd you get in the movies? That was a, a, how many have you been in? Like what? What? And has it always been a role thing, or did you audition for things? Like, man, I've been. I've got like fourteen or fifteen to my credit now. Um. It started with uh, Donna Karen. Uh, the bag maker? Yeah, the lady designer, yeah. Yeah. Um, she was doing a new campaign for her summer line in 2003, maybe, right before the record came out. The record was done, and it was about to come out. And, the Drifter? Yeah, and she uh, was doing a, a like a mini movie with um, these supermodels that she – and it was a storyline about a girl coming to find her friend or brother and listen to Waylon Payne music. And so it was a little movie that we did. And then uh, a couple of months later. Um, was it a speaking role or was it? I was just playing myself. Uh, it was a, but you were talking. And oh, yeah. It was a little mini movie. and, and Scripted? Uh, oh, yeah. Totally scripted. It was about a 15-minute little thing. Sylvia Miles was in it. She was a great actress from the Andy Warhol days. And. Um, it was her last, one of her last films, so it was cool to, to work with her. And a couple of months later, um, I had a friend at APA in Nashville named Frank Wing, who uh, I've known as long as Frank Liddell. He, he uh, met him when he was just a brand new agent, just started. Yeah, that's your Frank Wing. Yeah. Um, he was a brand new agent, just starting out um, in uh, Nashville. Wore a lot of turquoise and. Yeah, handsome Indian guy. Yeah. Yeah, his dad was in the politics and the wings down in, in San Antonio. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I think he's a federal judge or something, like a, or something, something like big, big. Um, anyway, he he tried to help me, you know, as an agent, and he I was just green then too. But um, we kept in touch over the years and through the years, and he called me one day. He's like, hey, there's this thing happening in, in Hollywood. They're making a movie about Johnny Cash, and they want – real singers and songwriters to play the actors. And, and I think you should go read for this. It would be, you, you, you might like it. So he sent me the script and, or sent, something happened. I went in and I was going to audition for Waylon Jennings. I just brought a guitar and I had these Manuel pants that I'd paid way too much money for. And so I, I was, I was out of it anyway. So I just went in looking like a rock star and I got a call back and, uh, in the time that it took me to get the call back, I'd read the script and I was like, man, this thing's really good. And on the way in to the next one, my buddy Will drove me to the audition and I was like, I really think I want to audition for this other part of Jerry Lee Lewis because it's really, it's really good, you know? And, and, uh, when I got there, um, James Mangold, the, the director, um, uh, met and we shook hands and we started talking and I was like, uh, Hey, I know I read for Waylon Jennings, but this other part's really, really, I think it might be more me. It was like, well, that's really what we were kind of looking at you for. And would you like to consider reading for Jerry Lee Lewis? So I read for it. And that's so funny, man. They it was. Knew. Well, I guess they did. And he was like, at the end of the meeting, he said, uh, <laughs> he said, no, do you play piano? And I lied through my teeth. I said, absolutely. And he said, well, can you have a video here uh, back for us maybe tomorrow afternoon of you playing some? I'm like, 
Yes. Sure. sure. <laughs> and Jump off the cliff. And I went back to the house, and the guy that was helping manage me at the time, Mike Welch, he was Kevin Spacey's assistant at the time, and Kevin had uh, come into my life for a brief moment and was uh, I met Mike through him. and He threw you on the bed. And, oh, a different story? Different story. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Mike uh, came over and filmed me. I had a piano Would at the you place. Learn a couple block chords? I learned I'm not Lisa. Oh, yeah. And uh, I uh, played it all afternoon and all evening. And I could play Great Balls of Fire because it was in G and it had three chords, but it wasn't fast. Right. And uh, that's... Did that, you pick that up that afternoon? It did. I, I Yeah, I, I was determined to do it. I know I knew a few chords on the piano, so it wasn't like it was a foreign thing. I didn't go in and just automatically teach myself stuff. But it took me a few minutes to get my fingers to know where they were supposed to go. And it's all re repetition, so... Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and they called me back and they were like, hey, congratulations, Mr. Lewis. And I was like, motherfuck, this is great. Isn't that great how that worked? It of was course you were Jerry Lee awesome. Lewis instead of Whaling. I had a, a ball. and Did it, Shooter end up playing Whaling? Yep. Yeah. Yep. It was great. We had, a, we had a great time. That movie was out of control. That's a pretty, that's a pretty big splash. It was your awesome first feature film. And well, I mean, you know, I mean, think about it. I mean, I was pulling, I was pulling off some amazing shit. You know, I just went to Hollywood and tried. You know, and I, even though my first record didn't wasn't that successful, you couldn't have told me that. Tell me the truth. Yeah. Well, you I was going to bring that up when we started talking about the record earlier because it's because. Hey, but you know what? That record, that record is huge for a lot of people. It's just. Well, it, it, you know, it surprised me when it first came out because it was a number one record in Texas on the charts for a minute. And I had never had, I didn't know anything about that. And it was really cool. But the cuts that it brought me, mm -hmm. you know, um, and I was really fortunate or smart or whatever. There was a stroke of luck that allowed me to retain my publishing on that. I, I didn't have to give it to Universal. I owned it all. Still do. That's the beauty of having nobody really want it. <laughs> yeah. And like, so that's been a lifesaver over the past few years. You know, Charlie um, uh, cut the bottom. Charlie uh, cut the bottom. Leanne cut her. Yeah. Um, uh, Corey cut uh, Running from the Rain. Corey. Morrow. Morrow. Um, Did Pat cut something from there? No, he cut Jesus on a Greyhound, though, afterwards. I mean, that was, even though I didn't, but still I wrote it, so it's cool, yeah. you know. Um Aaron uh, Lewis has just cut the bottom. That recording of your recording of the bottom is one of my favorite sparse, just dreamlike. Well, songs. Gaddis really uh, did his thing on that, you know. He, well, I just uh, love it that Gaddis, as talented as he is, it. It's, it's, I've, I've talked about this with him before, so it's not like I'm speaking out of turn, but like for him to step out of his own shadow and really dive into somebody else's art. Yeah. Oh, don't think that it wasn't uh, totally turned by his hands. That was a, that was a real hard, okay, I'm going to speak freely and I might get in trouble, but I would say it to him too. That was the first, uh, one of the first experiences I had where um it was a dick contest you know and um there were several times when we fought and 
there were several times when he threatened to pull the plug if I didn't fucking get my act together and blah, 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 blah. You know what I mean? There was mm-hmm. a lot of that. And um, well, there I can was, see him doing that because in his mind, he's like, I'm taking time out yeah, of I'm the boss. Keith Gaddis and, yeah, to, yeah, to, yeah. To, to work with you. But he got a great record. So yes, it was, did, uh, it was you know, I'll never be able to thank him enough for that. That so. record really does. There's, there's a few records in my world that, that I go back to and listen to. And when I listen to them after, after a while, I go, fuck, that's lightning in a bottle. I have not listened to that record in a very, very, very long time. Well, I can tell you, it still holds up in a way that, Sometimes it surprises me because something will come, like I'll hear a, you know, random her somehow or, or, uh, and they are, they, they really do surprise me sometimes because the production is incredible and, and he never, he didn't, he didn't leave anything to chance on that. Either. He killed it and you yeah. did too, but it, there's a, there's honey, listen, that record was all him. I had nothing to do with that record except for. Uh, showing up and writing the songs and and then like singing them like eight hundred times. Yeah, but also showing up and being <laughs> being that young with it, being that being that. That being was one of the biggest. That was one of the of biggest songs, fights man. too. Was because I like uh, I have kind of a photographic memory when it comes to singing, uh-huh. and like uh, when you sing your song in the studio and you know you've got the take. And then you never hear that take again. It's frustrating. And um, the frustrating part for me was that most of that record was like a jigsaw puzzle. He comped it, all his vocals? All of it. All of it. That must have been hard. Having not made it records was before, hard. It was hard because was. I had watched my mom... For years. Mama did not understand while we were making that record. She died before that record came out. And um, but she got to hear it when we we finished and she fucking destroyed me because she hated it. Oh no. Oh yeah. She was like, You've been fucking recording an album for six months and this is what you got. She didn't understand it. No, because she was like, Yeah, I mean, she recorded she could record 17 albums in six months you know they had four or five days to cut an album and bam that's how she did it you know singer yeah that was a different time i have a friend who every time i make a record he hates it and if he doesn't hate it i know it's a bad record if he he hates it the people that hate your record (laughs) normally means it's a good thing yeah especially if it's someone that you care about their opinion oh god what does it mean when everybody loves it well that's when yeah, be, be careful. Watch out for those. Oh, God damn. I might as well go on home. Be, be careful for those. Oh, no. Oh, no. That's funny <laughs> you say that, man, because all you had were the songs and whatever, but the ability to allow somebody else to take control of those songs when you hadn't made a record before, so you didn't really know what comping vocals were or, or, or putting two different, tr- like building records like that, but you get the takes but then you, yeah, it was totally it foreign. Totally thing. foreign to me. I didn't understand. So, it. did you like it when it came out, or did you believe mm, your mom? No, I didn't. Well, it was hard for me to listen to because I like those. It wasn't that wasn't the way I sang those songs. Mm-hmm. I didn't write those songs that way. 
That was another one. That was a huge argument. It was fucking one day I came in and I was like, I wrote the song this way. He's like, you didn't write the song that way. And I was like, yeah, I wrote the song that way. Remember? It's funny though, man, because you probably didn't know much about why it's important to have those tight arrangements. Mm-mm. And I've told you this before when we've talked about this, where I go, who helped you arrange that? Because I've heard v- rough vocals of some of your songs. And while I love, I absolutely love them and see the brilliance in them, sometimes they're really long. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, yeah, get to come it. Come on, wait, like, where are we going with this? Because my attention span gets cracked yeah. up. And then when I hear the records, I go, God, I'm so glad he's got a great editor. Yeah. Well, I mean, this new record, there's nothing that that was a beautiful thing about that was it's all live from the floor. Well, I've heard different few. versions of these songs, though, too. Well, you heard, you've heard this record for the past 10 years. Right. Now, you heard the first versions I did down in Austin. I've done two versions of this album. Right. The first version was uh, uh, what I did with Matt Hubbard over at Willie's studio. Which a lot is real of, organic A lot of the it. same songs, but it's very High organic. And it's, yeah, it's all the same. It's a lot of the same songs, um, but it was the first... Uh, 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 I guess existence of them, you know, and uh, Frank, I took that record to Frank and, and he was like, this is, this is really, really great, but I, I want to make it better. And did he say kind of what I'm saying? Like, it, it, well, no, the one that, the one that he heard, the songs are all there. They're, they're, they're exactly the way that they were recorded on the Texas one. There are a few that aren't on there because I had a few different, ideas and, and things but um frank Make loved it, it. he just wanted it sonically the he wanted it to be better musicians better it's like when loretta lynn went in and sang honky tonk girl for the first time and they stopped the session and the guy goes i need i don't need uh more pickers i need better pickers right. you know and frank man frank knew what he was getting he knew what he wanted and he gave me exactly what i needed i yeah. think you've you been know? lucky to have people that really have great taste yeah take a real interest in what you do because both gaddis and frank are i have a lot of great father figures in my life yeah. uh, you know and uh, it's kind of worked its way out um you know frank is frank's been frank's been solid as a rock for 25 years in my life. You Which know? might be the first time I've ever heard anybody say those words about, about Frank. Frank. <laughs> <laughs> He's good shit, you know? He's great. He's one of the only guys in town that, that I've ever, over the course of 20 years, 25 years, if I don't trust any opinion, I'll give a song or a record or whatever to Frank and go, okay, man, what do you think? And he'll, he'll come back and go, hey, man. This, what you want from him is to have him come back going, hey, hey, man. Hey, uh, this fired me up. I'm hey, man. Up. Yeah, fired up, man. <laughs> he always gives really good advice. And he has, you can trust him. Mm-hmm. Same with Gaddis. Like, they might not give you the accolades or the, or the flowery language that you want, but they're going to go, hey, this could be better. Mm-hmm. Fra- I, I sent Frank a record and he goes, hey, man, why don't you just scrap this and Go do something great while nobody's watching. Yeah. And I go, oh, 10 4, good buddy. So hold on. You, you did walk the line. Mm-hmm. 
I did walk the line and um, found that I was good at it. And um, the agents that uh, helped me get walk the line signed me up right away. And I started, you know, the next film I was the lead and, and I just kept going. And um, I liked it a lot. Um, it's uh, What do you love about it? Because uh, it's... I love the craft. I love the technicality of it. I love everyone coming together with a common goal to do something special. And when everyone takes a chance and puts the effort into it, you have something that can live forever. I mean, movies... That was, what are you talking about? That was my childhood. That was my escape. That was all of our escape. Um, not only that, but to know that the first real film out of the gate that you had was going to be a classic. There, there was just no way around that. Right. I mean, it, 20th Century Fox, Johnny Cash. Reese Witherspoon walking. There's no way that is not going to be around for 50 years. And it's kind of badass. Yeah, it's going to be everything everybody thought yeah, about. Yeah, it's cool. Um, and uh, so I worked as many of those as I could, you know, but kind of burned myself out because I was still doing drugs and right. uh, burned a few bridges. But you know what? Uh, the last Did you three- choked on set and be. Hungover or hangover? Um, I always had the ability, or at least thought I had the ability to, when it was time to go work, I could separate that. I, I prided myself on not showing up and not letting people, or at least I thought, you know, that I was able to pull it off. But sometimes I didn't, sometimes I didn't. So for people that are listening, because I know whenever I listen to these things, I'll try, because it's going by in real time. So if you were like, hey, man, besides Walk the Line, which is is obviously a a calling card, what movie would you go, hey, man, crazy? go check this out? Crazy. Crazy. I'm I'm not sure if I've seen that. Crazy is a film about the guitar player Hank Garland. And um, um, it... He was a troubled guy. He uh, had some uh, issues mentally, but he was just a great guitar player, Chet Atkins level, um, Grady Martin level. Right. And uh, it was uh, it was uh, it was everything you just it was everything you dream of. Uh, little three million dollar movie. Ali Larder was my uh, co-star and and uh, my leading lady, and uh, we just had a. It was a beautiful film. Beautiful film it was the last film that they shot at the Ambassador Hotel before they tore it down. Where like is it stream on Netflix or what? Like, you can get it on Amazon, Amazon, Amazon Prime, and uh, and another one that I did that I'm very I'm extremely proud of. Uh, is a director named Monty Hellman. His last film that he did called Road to Nowhere. Um, I was really proud of that 
because that was uh, that was one of the first. Uh, it was just a cool experience. Yeah, it's a great film. So when you like these days, is that something where you? They called you? Or you or well, you I mean, these days, if it happens, I mean, like, sometimes they'll call Edward, you know. I mean, like, there have been a couple of times that that'll happen. And, like, because there's a, you know, well, used to, there was a, a number on the IMDb page, you know, call this guy, and, you know, if you want him. Now, you know, things are a little different. I'm, I'm with a, an agency, I'm with Paradigm, and they rep me out in California now. And, um, but I haven't really done many, um, projects for them that kind of I've kind of I kind of told Frank that I would um, put that part of my life on hold for a moment there is a there is a role that, that I've uh, I'm in talks to do which I, I have put my foot firmly down that I will do and right. uh, um, and there's no argument about that but um, is that somewhere you go read for an audition or is it something that you, something that, that uh, for you um, well, I mean, um, the one that, that um, this one was just offered and they're making a film about a friend of mine and they kind of have an idea of who they want to play him. And so they kind of approached me and, and of course I will do anything for them. So, yeah. That's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. It's good stuff. So what, what happened to this documentary? Tell me, tell me a little bit about that. The documentary, um, you know, it was about, it was supposed to be about, I guess, the birth of the, this country singer making his record. And um, they got so much more. Um, so they, they were, were filming you while you They were filmed me from 2002 until my mother was lying dead in her coffin in 2005. So they got me making The Drifter. They got me going to New York and getting my record deal. They got me meeting Ty. They got me going straight downhill for the next two years, three years. And it all culminated with them writing me off, thinking I was going to die in an alley somewhere probably. Um, and uh, for a number of years, nothing happened. And I came to Austin in 2008, met Edward, and uh, and with his help and Willie's help and some other friends, just pull myself together. And, and, uh, and, um, so we started talking again about maybe turning it into something a little bit more helpful. Um, uh, you know, and so it became a, uh, a film about the perils of methamphetamines mm -hmm. and, uh, but we haven't really quite finished it yet. Uh, we don't know what the what the finish is going to be, but you know it's a it's a. Uh, I don't think that I would pardon me. I don't think that I would um, find much value of it in it right now because it's just a, a spoiled brat um, who gets everything he ever wanted and, and can't deal with it. Right. You know, there's not really much value to it um, unless you go back and you show something in the end and help people figure out what it is, you know? Yeah. What is it, man? Man, love saved my life. It really did. Um, had, had not, had I not been in, in the right place at the right time, I might've missed 
something that changed my life. And, um, you know, I joke about it a lot, but it's no joke. I, I just took a chance and tried something different. I let someone help me and I let someone love me and, and help me get back on my feet. When? 2008. I came to town. I came to Austin from Nashville. Corey Morrow helped uh, set up like eight dates. And uh, first night that I got to Austin, uh, July 24, 2008, I met Edward. And uh, Edward uh, just fucking cared. I can't explain it. I say we fell in love. Uh, because we all fell in love with each other, but in a healthy way, mm-hmm. you know. I had never had. There weren't many men in my life that were solid people that didn't want to fucking take from me or use me, or, you know. And all of a sudden, there was just this person in my life that just wanted to see me do good. And um, over time, I trusted him. Over time, he fucking helped me figure out, okay, you need to do things different. Let's let's try to figure out a different way to do things and pay my taxes, get a, get a checking account, fucking start handling yourself with some class and some composure. And, and eventually, it, it gave me the strength to get off of shit, you know. He had a baby, and that baby I've known since he was in the womb. Talk to him. Um, he was an Aries, just like me. He was born a week before me. Um, and he's just a light, a light. He's so kind and he's so. I knew that this kid knew me and would want someone of his dad's character to be there, you know? And so I just. I I just loved my new friend and let him love me and you know I was I was under the impression at the first I'm sure that I thought that I was finding a savior you know the, this guy's going to come and save my life and make me happily ever after and it was like no I, that's not what we're going to be but if you'll trust me I think that I can show you some bigger things that was never really said but it was just kind of that was what it felt like, you know? And so I trusted it. I trusted it, and I... I How long did it take you to trust that? Because A couple did, of years. Did you ever think that you kept waiting for the other shoe to drop? I mean, it it just was... It it just it just happened. It was just like... It, it just... Eventually, it just got through that shell that I built, you know? It's funny the way you talk about that, man, because the friendship that we've had, It's a trip to me because sometimes the way you fall in love with people, not in a sexual way, but the way you've really, you're very good, like you're very open. I just love, when I love people, I love them. And I remember thinking, can I, can I carry the weight of his, can I, can I be what he, what I feel like he needs me to be in it for a long time, man, like. I would kind of keep you well, at of arm's course. length because I was like, "Hey, man, I'm, I got my own wife and kids. Like, <laughs> like I got enough. Sh- you know what I mean? Like, yeah, because you were so open and so obviously in need of that. 
in a great way. But it wasn't until the last couple of years where I go, no, we can be friends, man. He, like, yeah, we can be healthy together. <laughs> it's, it's a trip. It's all about boundaries and figuring out what you need, you know. And you're talking to somebody when I met Edward and I came back and when I was trying to be centered, I had no boundaries. Everything was had just become so wide open. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know who I was anymore, you know. Um, but I'm still here. Yeah. You know? So tell me this, when you put out our new record, say the title again, man. I love Blue Eyes, The Harlot, The Queer, The Pusher, and Me. <laughs> so, so you're saying that you've dealt with multiple personalities, it's a word? Exactly. <laughs> Call me Sybil. <laughs> <laughs> you said Sybil, not simple. Sybil, yeah. Remember that movie? Of course. That's some fucked up shit. I dated her. <laughs> Did you? <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> so when you put a record out like that now, knowing that what you know about 25 years in the music business and the movie business and doing what you do, like what do you, what, I struggle with this too. I'm asking, picking your brain. Like what, what do you, what, what kind of expectations do you have about stuff? And I don't know. I I um I don't know what I'm supposed to expect from all this. I have a couple of folks that are careful to they don't want me to get my hopes up. Oh yeah. Cause I get my hopes up a lot. I'm always wanting to believe in the next thing, you know. And, uh, but this is the first time in like 15 years that I've been able to believe in something because I followed through. Mm -hmm. It's taken me a long time to get this record done. 10 years I've been making and singing these songs and figuring out a way to get them heard. And, um, but do you want to, okay, let me ask you this. Like as far as, you know, I know that after all these years in my world, it's still about touring. Oh yeah, for me, that's it's like it. Hundred days a year on the road. If I wouldn't have had to cancel in March because of the coronavirus, we'd still be out there. I that's all I want to do. You know, we've got and it's and it works. I've got a great band these days. Uh, we're all nearly fifty. It's it's all been done, right? And that's a fucking great feeling to have because there aren't any amateurs anymore. We know that, okay, if sound checks at five, well, we all need to be already ready to be there. You know what I mean? We've got work to do. Whatever. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like you show up. If I'm going to, if I'm going to show up and I'm going to be straight for this, I need y'all to be straight for it too, so to speak. Um, Right. You know, and it's, it works effortlessly. We, I told, I asked Frank um, when it was apparent that I was not, it was not working the way I was doing it. I said, okay, here's what I would like to have happen. Liddell? Uh, Frank Liddell, yeah. yeah. Um, I said, if uh, if you could arrange it, Frank, to where tomorrow when I walk into rehearsal, um, I don't have any friends in that room, and uh, everybody knows their shit, and uh, did you get that June bug out of your car? Yeah, Come that's, on. That's, he just likes me. Brand, that's Brandy. With um, and I was like, if you can uh, make it to where they know there's, I just need some pros and I need your help. And that was all it took. And I got it. 
And uh, that's fantastic. I don't think I've ever seen you play with a band. I guarantee you've never seen me play like this because it's it just uh, has been right from the minute. You know, there's four of us. It made me step up in my guitar playing. Yeah. You know, but everybody knows their shit and everybody knows what they're supposed to do, which makes my job just as easy, easy as pie. Like what kind of venues are you playing? Are Theaters. You, little, little um, I did it. I started with, uh, when I first signed with Paradigm, I went out with Robert Earl for a couple of few months, uh, just as a duo and then a solo by myself. And then, uh, how'd he take to you? He and I had a ball. I love him. He was really, really, really a gentleman and uh, so accommodating. And we laughed a lot. Uh, he's a funny dude. And uh, we had a ball. And then um, they put me back in those same venues uh, a couple months later with my band. And, and um, man, it was it was pretty cool. We were only playing to four or five people a night, but hey, we were packing those four or five people in. Yeah. One one little dude came to five shows. Isn't that right? Yeah. Tried to get me in the trunk, but I wouldn't let him. <laughs> Good. You stay yeah. strong. Yeah. So what do you want to do, man? What's, what, what, what do I'm you hoping that this uh, virus gets out of the air and we can all go back to work. Because uh, I want nothing more than to just play this record for a few years and then make another one and play that for a few years. And, you know, I want to keep hanging with my buddies and writing music. And, yeah, I want to do more movies. I want an Oscar. I want a Grammy, maybe. It's not really that important. I want the Oscar, though. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just want to. I just want to keep being me and hanging out and having fun. Because it's a lot more fun these days than I can remember it. You know. Well, it's amazing to see. To look right before we started talking, and this is our. This is my first go around at having two mics in a conversation with a friend. As far as like, on my dime. You're a good podcaster. Well. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, is because I know you at a level where we we speak freely, and and I knew the answer before I asked you, but I just wanted to make sure before we got into a situation like this, to where I mean, man, there's not many people who can be as open, wide open with their heart as as you are always. And like you said, like I remember when we were at that Miranda Lambert taping for uh the songwriters all got mm. together to sing a song to see whatever song they contributed to her last record the way to the wings and at night i remember kevin my tour manager i was like because we were talking about you were like it's all happening it's all happening it's gonna we finally did it it's going man we got a platinum like i was going is man is is he hoping for a lot more than like are his expectations really high or because you were so amped up and it scared me for you for that record well just for your life like you're like we got a song on this record it's gonna be this and this and we're gonna go well, out and mean, do this and that and i was like hey man how how often i mean like i mean maybe it happens a lot to other folks but i mean that was only my second platinum record i mean i had never i mean i, I don't know but that it's funny like from, just from my perspective of having had my own exp- like I, I'm 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 a I can have I can be an optimist too, mm. and my expectations 
Like the first time you go on the Tonight Show and you're like, tomorrow? Y'all better fucking say goodbye to me tonight because tomorrow I'm not going to have time <laughs> for this shit. And then you walk out the hotel and you go. I am all too aware of nobody, Cinderella no, moments, nothing's baby. Nothing's changed. I am all too familiar with that. My whole life has been based on those moments. Right, like every record's going to be the next big thing. And well, I, I, but I've, I've, I'm not... I am I am not delusional enough to think that that's about to happen. That's not anything that that is in my mind or clouding my mind. Right. Um I do believe that good music finds its way to wherever it's supposed to be. Absolutely. And I think that for the first time in a very long time I've got a a really stellar something. And um, it's going to move you to the next place. I think so. And I think some people need to hear it, you know, and even if it's singing for four people a night, those can be the best shows. Those are, those are still, you know, you still get to hear a few people's responses afterwards. You know, I don't think I'm going to be singing for four people for too long, um, no. but I don't think that uh, I need my expectations to get too lofty yet. I've got, I can, I can wait to see what happens, you know, yeah, absolutely. I enjoy the ride, and uh, I'll, but I don't think I won't be calling you that night that I walk out on stage and I'm like, holy fuck, hey, look at those people. Hey, Jack, there's 100,000 people here. If that happens. Or 100. <laughs> or 100. <laughs> hey, that's good, too. 100 people in a 100-seat room is just as the same as 100,000 in a 100,000-seat room. Well, hey, yeah, if you got 100 people paying 100 bucks a seat. Whatever, man. Like, when you feel – the funny part about the expectations of shows is I've had, if everybody who ever told me they were at my show, Eight Airs in 1994, or that show at the Varsity Club in Auburn, like I know there were four people, but I've had 4,000 people tell me they were there. I'm yeah. Like, We'd have made a lot more money. If you <laughs> but what I love is, it, is the process and the journey and the consistency of it that when you're out there doing it and it's just one step at a time and every step leads to the next step, leads to the next step. And it's funny. It's, it's great to see you in this place where I feel like. Well, I feel hey, like this is really like the first time I've ever done it. That's what I mean. You know, and I don't, I, don't, I know definitely what not to do, or at least I have a pretty good guideline. Um, and the whole thing about the openness, man, uh, it's been horrible. My life has, has been horrible at times, um, but so have a lot of other people's. Um, I just choose to use my memories and experiences uh, and as I sort through them, try to help pass along what I learned. That's about it. Um, I've never talked about the stuff that I'm talking about as I get ready for this record to come out. But thank God I am. I mean, you know, thank God I have the ability. Maybe, you know, maybe it needs to be talked about once, you know. Edward seems to think that once I get this story out and it's finally done, that I'll be able to move on and 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 
because it's told. And I think you might be right. It just kind of feels well, I like think it's the shock and awe value. Of, it's not that? really for the shock and awe value, not. and it's not really. It's not really. That's not the reason I am telling these stories or that they're coming out. It's not a shock and awe value, and that was a conversation that some people and I had the other night. You know, this girl was. <laughs> This girl was like, well, it's too bad you couldn't, you know, you can't be uh, raped or, or or a transgender or something and throw it out there. You know, like, she was t totally innocently like making a comment like about how extreme things are. And yeah. I was like, well, to be perfectly honest, it is pretty extreme, but that is not the reason that I chose to tell these stories. No, that's what you I'm mean. talking to you. That's kind of what I mean about being open and you've always been so open is that when I'm talking to you and you're telling me these stories and they are outrageous and they're provocative and they're, they're uh, enlightening and they show a lot of, of your soul, but they're just interwoven into the fabric of who you are. It, does, it doesn't feel like shock and awe. I didn't mean that. I mean, yeah. I meant like once you tell the story once, you've gotten then you, you've heard it for the first time in a way like, and then the next time you tell it, it's more integrated into, it, it's just, you never have to hide what you're gonna do. It's just t telling other people, you'll be able to couch it in different ways because you'll have more of a handle on it yeah. of what it is yeah, and how it affects people. Cause these, these stories can affect people of like, w what the fuck did he just say? Cause they're, <laughs> but it's true. It's a part of your story and it's part of your songs. You're, you're not ever going to be the first openly gay anything. No, it's not necessary. What you're going to be is the first Waylon Payne Waylon. who knows exactly who the fuck he is and can consistently go out. And it's not a message of, in my mind, it doesn't seem like a message of, uh, it's not some Oprah Winfrey aha moment or, or I've, I've, I've survived. It's more like, we all have lives. This is mine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just a point of view from a, a, a person who's got a point of view. Yeah. I remember the other night we were talking and you, you were halfway through some of these stories and I was like, well, this one time, man, I got this terrible paper cut on my, <laughs> on my finger and it, it hurt really like hurt really and bad. Put alcohol on it. It's like, ow, ow. <laughs> That's awesome. Wait, man. I don't know what this is, but Thanks, it's been pal. fun talking with you. It's been fun talking to you, too. Uh, I'm going to go to the restroom now. And three, two, one. Hey, come on, do it. What happened? Blew that load. Man. Man.